You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. CFOs and controllers, there's a better way to manage cards, expenses, travel, and reimbursements. You need a unified spend platform from Brex that lets you control all your spend in one place, automate compliance, and close the books faster. Get started at Brex.com. Each of us has an inner voice that can be very loud and persuasive. Hopefully, it's pushing us to do better and reminding us of all we can accomplish. But sometimes it leads us to believe that the theater industry is too hard and constantly tells us we're not good enough or don't deserve an amazing acting career. With an inner critic like that, it's going to be really difficult to motivate ourselves to keep going, to go to that next audition. The very title of this podcast is an example of the ways in which we can stifle our own potential. Yes, sure, training and talent are certainly important too, but it's our mindset that is the key to using our training and talent to their fullest extent. So as we start off this new year, I'm continuing where we left off last week with Brooke McNamara by talking with another psychologist, Alisa Hurwitz, also known as Dr. Drama. In this episode from 2020, we dive into why mindset is so important and how we actors can deal with rejection and the challenges we face in this business. I'm sure as an actor, you take a lot of hits. There's a lot of rejection. There's a lot of no's. There's a lot of disappointment. I can't imagine going on a hundred job interviews and you get one offer, you know, you're lucky. Like, I can't imagine navigating that. Welcome to Why I'll Never Make It, featuring conversations with fellow artists about the realities of life in the arts and challenging that notion of what it means to make it. I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, and your support for the ongoing work of this podcast would be greatly appreciated. Go to whyillnevermakeit.com where you can choose a monthly subscription to bonus content or you can make a one-time donation to this podcast. Again, that's why I'll never make it.com. 55 years ago, a shy former screenwriter and unsuccessful novelist sat down for an interview with the Saturday Evening Post. He expressed worries about living up to his own work and said, quote, I always have the feeling that people will take one look and recognize me as a fraud. That writer was Theodore Geisel better known to generations of children as Dr. Seuss. Despite having sold millions of books and receiving critical praise for almost every one of them, Geisel was still worried that people would see through his creations and find someone who wasn't that good or talented. Now, if someone of his stature and talent can feel insecure, how much more so can those of us who haven't reached any such level feel dejected and uncertain about our own careers. And that is some of what we'll be talking about today as I basically let you in on a therapy session with a noted psychologist where I share my doubts and questions on how to handle the roller coaster that we all ride as creatives working in the arts. Dr. Lisa Horwitz, I go on social media by Dr. Drama. 
And uh, my field of study is it's clinical psychology and specifically my specialties include um, working with the um, autism population, working with trauma and working um, with gender identity. Her moniker, Dr. Drama, comes from her many analytical interviews, discussions and articles on theater, specifically her lifelong passion for musical theater. She's even consulted on regional and off-Broadway productions on elements related to psychological concepts and mental health issues. So she is the perfect person to help us face some of the realities of this make-believe world of theater, a profession that can bring us tremendous joy, but also sorrow and frustration. Dr. Seuss also said, quote, Fantasy is a necessary ingredient in living. It's a way of looking at life through the wrong end of the telescope which is what I do, and that enables you to laugh at life's realities. And one of those harsh realities is the fact that we won't always get the show that we want. We're not always going to be cast. So how can we set goals for ourselves knowing that those goals will not often be reached? On a practical level, if somebody was like sitting in my office or my virtual office these days, um, you know, and they were an actor, you know, and they asked me this question, I would certainly be doing some cognitive behavioral work around that where we would, we would be, you know, we'd make it concrete, you know, like writing it down, you know, what are your goals and, you know, to make them, um, you know, specific and achievable, you know, so is the goal kind of this obtuse, like I want, you know, I want to be, you know, working actor in, in 2021 or, um, you know, but what does that mean? Like, how do you functionally define that? Like a good scientist would do so that you do make it defined and achievable. At the same time, kind of the, that's the behavioral piece. The cognitive piece is what do those goals mean to you? What does it mean if you don't achieve those goals? How does that affect the narrative that you have about yourself? Right. Um, so for example, if you don't achieve those goals, does that mean that you're going to lead you to think of yourself as, as a failure? You know, the, the language that we use in our heads, the conversations we have in our heads are so powerful and they define us and they can, they influence our feelings and emotions, um, which then in turn can influence our behavior. So if we're feeling ineffective, feeling like a failure, it makes it very hard to keep going, to keep persisting. I use the example of in um, the musical Hades Town, the fates are, you know, are the negative thoughts. They are talking to Orpheus. Well, they talk to everybody, but Orpheus really comes to mind because we see him doubt himself and the impact that that has because he turns around, he doubts himself and they're whispering in his ears, you know, who are you to take this path? Who are you to lead people out of here? And he believes them. And so he doubts himself. He feels bad about himself. And so what does he do? He turns around and now Eurydice has to go back down to Hades town for good. So there, there's really, there's, there's two components. Like there's the, there's the really specific kind of behavioral piece. And then there's a cognitive piece about what are the, what are the conversations you're having with yourself in your head and how are those serving you or not? Yeah. Because the specifically taking me, for example, and you can tell me if it's a concrete goal of making it to Broadway. If I want to have a Broadway contract, that, that's, that's a very definable, I, I will know if I've achieved it or not. So there's at least that, but also it's kind of, nebulous in the fact that, well, how does one achieve that? Because there are so many paths to that kind of success. Right. right. There's not, there is not one path to that. Right. And if you ask a hundred people their advice on how to get there, you get a hundred pieces of advice, <laughs> right? Opinions on how to, how to achieve that. Um, right. 
And that, that's what part of why I think great artists are so brave because, you know, like a career like mine, there is an A, B, C, D, E, F, and G that you do to get to become a psychologist. And yeah, whatever, like there are, you know, there are challenges about it, but it's so well-defined. Um, and there's such security in that. There's such security in that. And artists, it's, it's so to use the word for nebulous, you know, and to, to, to go into that uncertainty and to go into just to, to and to walk into that is so brave you know it's kind of like judy garland walking into oz you know yes like she wants to because she's curious and she's excited but it's also brave because it's so uncertain and i think i just think artists are so brave so the other part of that though is then if you don't like if you say i want to have a broadway contract by whatever by december 1st 2021 what if you don't? <laughs> right, right. Does that mean you haven't succeeded? I don't think that, I, you know, I, don't, I wouldn't say that doesn't mean that, but is that how you're going to interpret it? And to be thoughtful about that, because you don't, you don't want to, you don't, you don't want to internalize that message. Yeah. Yeah. And so that really leads to the next question. Whatever our goal is, when it has not been achieved, then, then there is that sense of, well, do I keep going? Do I need to do I need to extend that deadline, whatever I have? Or is it time to change that goal? And how do you know when it's best to, oh, I, I need to double down and do more in that direction? Or you know what? Maybe I need to go in another direction. Yeah. Oh God, that's so tough, right? But it's such a personal decision because it's also a calling. Being an artist is a calling. And there's the aspect of, you know, are you making art? Are you auditioning? Are you collaborating? Like, then you're a success. But are you able to support yourself, which is a whole other practicality of it? And what, you know, what does it cost you kind of in terms of emotional bandwidth to be doing jobs that, that pay the bills, but don't fulfill you, don't, you know, fill you up um, in order to sustain, you know, continuing to be an artist. And certainly being in an artistic field, that there is that objective and subjective part of it. But But wouldn't you say that there's somewhat the same, like even in your profession, that you want to enjoy the work that you do as well as getting paid for it. So there, there's still that sense, no matter what the job is, correct? I think so. But again, you know, again, like being like a, a non-artist civilian is, <laughs> you know, and doing the kind of nine to five job, it's so secure. We don't have to necessarily uh, um, interview for jobs every six months or a year, right? As an artist, you're, you're constantly having to interview or audition for jobs. Um, and so that the security isn't the same. But yes, I do think, I do think the meaning is important, um, as humans and, and, you know, to our psychology. Um, if we are doing a job that is a calling, it, you know, it's, it's speaking to some part of our soul, right? So for me, being a psychologist was a calling. Um, it, it definitely is. And, you know, and I've had to readjust, you know, when f- things didn't feel as fulfilling as a, you know, as kind of, it's helpful in sustaining, you know, in sustaining the work and, and check in with myself about that. Um, but I also don't have to worry about the objective piece of it, of, you know, it being like a steady paycheck. I mean, I think at the end of the day, if like you can't imagine yourself doing anything else, I think, I think this is what, you, you know, for anybody. If you can't imagine yourself not being an artist, then you have to be an artist. 
Because for me, you know, I came here in 2008 to New York City, and that was the goal, to be on Broadway. Now it's 2020, and I still haven't achieved that. So in one sense, there is a failure of that goal so far. Um, but at the same time, it's one that I've, I've waned on. In, in the sense of like I, I was doing a job in 2016 and thinking, what if I just went back to Florida? Because that's, that's where I was living before. What if I just went back to Florida and pursued that again, Disney World or whatever it was going to, you know, adjust that goal, leave this one behind, do something else, go back to what I was comfortable doing. But then another way that I've looked at it is adjusting what success means. Yes, I still want Broadway and that is a certain level of success, but this other level of success or definition of success would mean doing work that I'm passionate about, creating new roles, and that can be in a regional theater, and I can find fulfillment in that. So it's, I, I guess in one way, you still keep that goal that you haven't reached yet, but you find other, I guess, many goals along the way that mm -hmm. just will keep you going while always having that big one in sight. Yeah. Um it's interesting, you know, I mentioned earlier that I, I uh, one of my specialties is working with folks in the autism spectrum. And something that I have to work with them a lot on is the idea of breaking down one large goal into steps, um, not, not only for functional reasons, but also to then when you complete one of those steps to celebrate it. Because people with autism tend to think very black and white. So it's either I have achieved the goal or I haven't achieved the goal. If the only goal is to work on Broadway, then in that, like you said, in that way that you haven't achieved that. And that's so hard to like keep persisting through those 12 years. But if the goal is to work, to audition, you know, to stretch your, you know, your actor muscles to do meaningful work, then you've probably done that, you know, multiple times over. And that, that is, that is self-sustaining that keeps, that feeds us. It is really important to, to make note of and celebrate all of those steps along the way um and you can you know you can still have that 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 big goal out in front of you and be motivated by that but that just makes it so i mean if that if it's like what it's at it's at all or nothing then it makes it really hard it makes it really hard to sustain and there's also nothing wrong with like with people taking a turn and saying i don't you know i, th I think that another path is right for me it's gotta be what's right for you whatever is right for the individual. Uh, but absolutely, like finding those ways to feel good about each step along the way. It's one day. It's one day in all of those days. Yeah. Yeah, that's one thing that I was thinking as you were seeing that example of breaking it down into one day. Uh, you know, right now auditions aren't plentiful, but but still there's self-taping and doing stuff like that, that that's happening. So it's a matter of okay, on this day, I'm going to accomplish this and do the best I can and put out those two self-tapes or whatever you have that day. So it, so a good way to, to maintain one goal, a, a long-term goal, is to have many goals along the way, and that's a way to, to stay motivated and passionate about it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, because then you get to experience feeling successful and being successful, truly. Um, and that is self-sustaining, right? That keeps you, excuse me, keeps you motivated. Um, which is so, you know, it's so important because I'm sure as an actor, you take a lot of hits. There's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of rejection. There's a lot of no's. Um, 
there's a lot of disappointment. I can't imagine going on a hundred job interviews and you know, if you get one, one offer, you know, you're lucky. Like, I can't imagine. Right, right. That, that's that's what you hope. That. You hope for the one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but can you know, like 99 times, like, oh my gosh. A few years ago, I sat down and compiled all of my auditions, callbacks, and bookings for that year. And what I found was better than one out of a hundred, but just barely. I added up all of my auditions, whether from an agent or going to an equity audition or a self-tape submission. Then I calculated how many of those led to being cast. And my booking rate for that year was just under 5%, which I think is about average. There's a lot of actors that don't reach that percentage, and there's certainly some that I know that surpass that ratio. For several years, Backstage has had a series of articles by a writer simply known as Secret Agent Man. And in one article, he addresses this subject of booking ratios and gives three examples among the clients he represents. One is an older character actor who stays quite busy and books about one out of every six auditions. Another competitive category he mentions is that of attractive young people who are just starting out, with a ratio of about one out of every 20. The final example was of a young client who had been on 40 auditions and hadn't booked a single one. Yet she was called back in for half of those auditions and was down to the wire in a few of them. So this secret agent says that while numbers are important, they can also be misleading and that it's important to keep track of the bigger picture. The success isn't in whether or not you get the job, although that can be a definition of success. And of course, you want to get the offer. But that even before that, the success is just having the audition because you're working. That makes you working after, you know, being in that audition collaborating with artists, making art. So just being at the audition, like people were talking. CFOs and controllers, there's a better way to manage cards, expenses, travel, and reimbursements. You need a unified spend platform from Brex that lets you control all your spend in one place, automate compliance, and close the books faster. Get started at Brex.com. Thinking about thinking about that as, well, this is like, this is part of my job today. Mm-hmm. But the audition itself is the job. And, you know, and you're right. flexing your muscles and you're, you're trying things out and, you know, and you're getting in front of people who down the road may want to collaborate with you. So it's like really, you know, redefining what success means. And that also thinking, again, kind of turning, reframing it that the people on the other side of the table, they want you, they want you to be the right fit for the job. So in that way, they're rooting for you just as much as you're rooting for yourself. And that brings up a good point of that vision of looking outward or looking inward, because mm. certainly there is a selfishness and, and some of it is, is necessary in this business of looking after yourself, of seeing what you're doing, you know, and being very selfish about that and going for roles that you want. But there is that collaborative working with people in the room, the audition room, and certainly once you get on stage. And so what's the best way to balance that selfishness and collaboration? Mm. I, I mean, I would reframe it as self-care, you know, to, to be available to do the job. You have to be, you have to be filled up. Um, and, you know, of course your skills have to be sharp in whatever way that is. For some people, it's taking a lot of classes. For some people, it's, it's, um, you know, just saying yes to everything, you know, whatever that means to you. And if you're an introvert and be, you know, this work requires you to be around people a lot, making sure you have that time to yourself so that you're refueled self-care so that you are then available to 
you know, to do the work, to be the conduit, to be the artist, to be the creator, you know, and, and to be creating with other people, collaborating with other people. And it's different, of course, for everybody, but, but checking in with yourself to see how you're doing um, on a daily basis to see what you need is, is so important. Right. Because it's not just the rejection that we've been talking about. Certainly that happens where casting directors say no or really just don't respond and, respond, and yeah. then we don't get it. But there's also that level of our own mistakes. When we when we know we did not do our best that day, when we messed up the audition or we forgot a line on stage or whatever the case may be, that's something that can really make us start to doubt our own abilities. Canadian educational scholar and sociologist, Dr. Lawrence Peter, came up with a twist on the old adage that the cream always rises to the top, by stating instead that the cream rises until it sours. I found a rare BBC interview from the 70s where he talks about what came to be known as the Peter Principle. It's a fascinating interview, and the retro music and graphics only add to it. The Peter Principle states very simply that in any hierarchy, an employee tends to rise to his level of incompetence. That's where he stays. In other words, through his own research, Dr. Peter found that excellent workers will continue to rise in position and prominence based on their talent until they reach their level of incompetence, or rather a job that they're not right for, or one that they don't really have the skills to do well. And then as I looked around, I saw that very often competent people, a competent individual, was promoted to something he couldn't do. I saw a competent mechanic where I used to take my car. He was terrific. He was very responsible, very precise, knew exactly what he was doing. So they made him foreman. Now he's no longer fixing cars and he's trying to manage other mechanics. And he's very incompetent. He doesn't do this well. He's really a competent mechanic and an incompetent foreman. We see this happen in theater as well, where a superb actor is cast in a musical but can't really sing. And the reverse happens just as often. Beautiful, expressive singers who can't act their way out of a paper bag, as the saying goes. Another example of this is when big stars from television and movies come to the stage. Bruce Willis has had a long career of iconic roles and brilliant characters, but... When he starred in Misery on Broadway, some critics felt he gave new meaning to the title of that play. Ricky Martin is a platinum-selling artist with Grammys to boot, yet when he starred as Che in the revival of Evita, the New York Times called him thin-voiced and forgettable. Now, while these missteps were high-profile, each of us as artists have at times felt out of place or not up to the task of a particular role or production maybe just for that one day or sometimes during the entire run of the show. It can make us doubt our abilities and question if we'll ever be cast again. The individual often will be successful, feel happy, and then he gets to a position, which I call his level of incompetence, in which he's frustrated. He's no longer getting the satisfaction. He knows somehow that he isn't doing the job too well. So this may be a hard question to answer, but when do we know that 
maybe this is as good as I'm ever going to get, or no, I need to push harder and have more levels to attain. I think that comes from learning and teaching to be really in touch with that, with that, that, you know, kind of where you're at checking in with yourself. Um, I think teaching is when you've been in a field for a number of years can kind of surprise you how much you actually know, you know, cause you can, we kind of compare ourselves with ourselves and like, maybe I know some things, but like, there's so much I don't know, or we compare ourselves, we compare ourselves also with our direct peers. So they might be, you know, a couple of steps ahead, you know, so to speak, or we may be able to see them better because we, you know, kind of hard to see your own self. And so they, you know, we may see, oh, they, they really know what they're doing, but you know, but I'm not, I'm not sure I do. And then also like continually learning in my own field, we do that. We, we don't stop learning. We're required to continue uh, continue with education, continue, continue education hours. Um, cause we'll never know everything. It's like, no, no actor is ever going to know everything. Right? Right. It, and it's, it's a lifelong, it's a lifelong process. So I think the mistakes, you know, we can get in our heads about them, but the reality is in every job, every job, people make mistakes every day. I make mistakes every day. That doesn't mean I'm not good at what I do um, or don't know what I'm doing. Uh, just like an actor, you know, if he makes a mistake in an audition, doesn't mean he doesn't know what he's doing. It just means he's human. And it, it sucks, you know, because it's such a, it's, it requires you to perform to actually in the moment. And, and if you're good in that moment, you're good in that moment. If you're not, you're not. But um, it's no different than any other field where like we have good days and bad days. Yeah. And you had mentioned that part about comparing yourself and certainly envy can creep in to this where, you know, I've, I've certainly had it myself where I'm sitting in a Broadway house and I'm watching people on stage and I'm envious that they have what I want, you know? So, so and, then, and then we compare ourselves. It's like, well, I'm better than this person. Oh, I'm not as good as this person. And, and, and then that feeds into our own value of, of our abilities, value of self. How do, how do we, we best deal with, with those kind of comparisons and envious times? Yeah. I mean, something that I always say is to honor the feeling if somebody's feeling, you know, envious that, that somebody else has what they want, you don't, we don't want to get rid of feelings. They just, feelings aren't good or bad. They just are. What we do in response to those feelings can be better or worse. The feelings are always, are always completely valid and completely fine. It's okay to feel envious of that. You want it and somebody else has it. But then what do you do? So maybe you use that to motivate yourself. Well, I, I know I really want to be there. So Maybe there's some things I could try that, you know, that I haven't tried. Or maybe I can ask my friend who, you know, shows up, show I just, I just watched them in the show. Like, you know, what worked for them to book that gig? Just gain some piece of insight that'll be useful to me in the future. As opposed to like pushing that down and not acknowledging that it, it feels icky. Feelings are, this don't have any value in I mean, in terms of like being good or bad, they have value because they're informing us about something. And so what are we going to do with that? Right. It reminds us of, of the passion or the, or the drive that we want something. And so in that sense, that feeling of envy or jealousy is indicating that. And so then it's a matter of, okay, well, then I still want it. Then I still want that. How can I continue on that path rather than letting this person who's made it stop me from going forward. Right. It can be a real good reframe. You can, you, like you just said, like it can be, well, look at how much I still care and I'm passionate about getting there, you know, achieving that goal. I still love this. I still want this. 
you know, and it could be this great reminder. Yeah. Yeah. Because it, it really is a, a subjective field. And so much of our skill and our talent is valued on, you know, nowadays it's not just on stage and, and the kind of roles and the shows that we get, but it's valued in social media and the type of person that we put out there on social media, the best filtered pictures that we can, that we can post. And it's also become another stage for us to have to rise to, to be the best at, to be, and even casting directors are looking at, at our followers to see, okay, who has the most, I'll, I'll cast that person. So we now have this kind of dual stage of being real, quote unquote, in our social life, as well as trying to be this great professional actor. Yeah. I wonder if there was a corollary to that before social media. Like, I don't know. I don't know. I wonder if actors felt like they, they kind of had to play the role in like, uh, like, you know, uh, 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 you know, parties with the producers or, you know, at, at um, you know, if we're working for a nonprofit, like, you know, dinners, ticket holders or whatever, like if, if there's, if this is like just an evolution of, of that, but it certainly brings in this unique, unique aspect of it. Another way that you're, that you said that you're in state. Um, and the thing is, yeah. So in social media, yes, people are, there, there's definitely anecdotal proof or evidence that people will flock to an image of what they think they want, an, an image that has no soul. I'm not going to name names, but I'm definitely thinking of some <laughs> celebrities. Um, but people are also attracted to authenticity. You know, and I think about somebody like, like even Nobelizada, who has, who has uh, uh, you know, in the Broadway world, a considerable uh, social media following. And yes, she's led a couple of shows and that, you know, that definitely like, you know, kind of snowball effect. But her persona on social media is very much this real like day-to-day struggle of being a human in the world. And I just think it's interesting that that somebody like her has a has such a a strong social media following where people are so attracted to that. And I don't think that's what a publicist would tell you. (laughs) right Right? if you're having a bad day to talk about it on social media you know she's very public about having an eating disorder and being in recovery from that and kind of the daily struggles that she has with it if people respond to it it's it's so amazing just to see that so you know she kind of took i guess a different approach to that stage of really like i'm not even gonna pretend i'm just gonna be myself right you know, I'm, I don't have the the followers of someone like that, but at the same time, even I consider, do I want, you know, do I want this to be like a happy post? Cause I did, I traveled and did something, or do I want to talk about how I'm still in bed and it's three o'clock in the afternoon and I, and I feel crappy, you know, so that, that there's always that balance of, of, of being real. But then at the same time, you, you, even those pictures, even the one where I'm in bed and I don't feel great, I still filter it because I want it to to look good, even though I'm really bad. You know, I'm not feeling great. So, so, so even even our even our worst times have a bit of glitter thrown in. You're right, a little bit of glitter isn't a bad thing. <laughs> Everything could use a little bit of glitter, but yes, yeah, isn't that isn't that funny? Even even the like I'm having a bad day, I take it out of bed picture and throw, we throw the filter on it. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, and and does it like does it go through your mind like what's a future potential director gonna 
think if they're like looking at my social media to see, you know, if they're interested in hiring me, does that go through? You know, in some ways on my professional stuff, I think about that. But when it comes to like that example of, of just taking a personal picture in bed or whatever, I more or less think how people are going to, are they going to laugh at it? Are they going to be like, oh my gosh, I'm right there with you. It's more like, I'm curious if someone else is going to think or feel or respond similarly. Yeah. It's that, that, that social thing of, you know, if you say, if you put something out there that feels a little vulnerable or it's just going to like be crickets, right? (laughs) Which feels not so good. It feels really not validating, right? Or, or it's risky. Or people are going to be like, oh my God, you know, me too. I think that's part of what this, you know, has been meaningful about this time during the pandemic is that we are all going through it together to varying degrees. There certainly seems to be a subset of the country that is um, buying into propaganda that everything is okay and that we don't need to be all in this together. Um, But I think for the majority of us, we are all in this together. And, and it's, I think it's, it's been interesting to see how much people are talking about mental wellness uh, and mental health um, at this time, more so than I, I, I just, I've seen before um, in public discourse, because we all, we all are going through this. So, you know, outside of the pandemic, like saying like, oh my God, I'm having such a bad day. Um, but, you know, during the pandemic, I think everybody, like people relate to that. I think it's kind of in that way, like a really good time to be more open about those bad days and those bad moments because who hasn't felt that you have to be a really active denial which some people are yeah 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 we're we're all good at that no matter what it is um but but with regards to that do you have any strategy or advice when it comes to especially a time like this with with the pandemic and how to kind of keep the day-to-day push forward Mm. god it's so hard Right. It goes back to the idea of honoring the feelings. I think all things being equal, if you can have, you know, a routine that that is helpful, you know, if you go back to the basics of taking care of yourself. So drinking water, you know, hydrating, which actors and singers especially are so good at that already. (laughs) But hydrating, um, getting outside, uh, uh, exercise. Exercise is as effective as antidepressants for mild to moderate depression. Um, so, so that that's just it's just a great thing to have in your in your day. As much as you know, you're kind of physically and and emotionally able to move your body, you know, and and then feeding your your body as much as you can with you know with nutritious food um, and doing things you love too. Not forgetting to fill yourself up with the joy as well. But on a day-to-day basis, I what I would say is that if you're having a bad day and you just can't get out of bed, if you're if there's no nothing near, you know, you, you don't have any obligations to other people, like that's okay. Like, have the day in bed. Like if if it just feels shitty today, like just let it feel shitty. You know, Th- there's such harm in pushing down feelings. It's great if you just have to get through something. It's functional in that way. It's not great to do day after day after day after day. When people suppress feelings and push them down, they're like, I can't deal with this ever. They find a way to come out. It's not, it's not good for us. So honoring the feelings, you know, if it, if it, if, and if you're having a great day, have a great day, you know, 
<laughs> you can have a great day in the middle of a pandemic, as it turns out. Yeah, because I've I've heard those people that that actually almost feel like they have to apologize because something went well for them, or they had a great day, or even a great week. Yeah, and we don't, you know, we're still living, you know, our lives to a certain degree during this whole thing. So there's still the ups and downs. People are getting married. People are having babies. You know, people are getting engaged. People are falling in love. People are getting, you know, getting jobs, and. Um, and it's okay to feel good about those things without having to apologize. That, that kind of goes back to what we've been talking about, that those are the little milestones that can keep us going whenever there's a lot of crap around us. Yeah. It can be that, that, that kind of drive and, and motivation to, to get us going. Yeah. I said this earlier too, but to just reiterate it, that writing things down can be really useful. And when we, when we have an obligation to anybody, including ourselves, it makes it more likely that you're going to make it happen. In 2006, there was a film and later a self-help book that took America and the rest of the world by storm. It was a rather simple concept, but presented in a very bold and epic way. Throughout history, all the great minds, all the great leaders, all the great achievers, they had something in common. It was called The Secret. A slick repackaging of a 19th century idea that everything we want or need can come to us if we just believe in the outcome, if we repeatedly think about it, and we maintain an affirming emotional state that will attract that desired outcome to us, otherwise known as positive thinking. Do you know this secret gives you everything you want? Happiness, health, and wealth. You can have, do, or be anything you want. I've seen many miracles take place in people's lives. Financial miracles, miracles of physical healing, mental healing, healing in relationships. All of this happened because of knowing how to apply the secret. But one researcher has been on a mission to show the fallacies of positive thinking as a standalone strategy for achievement. Gabrielle Ottingen discovered in her more than 20 years of research in the science of human motivation that starry-eyed dreaming isn't all it's cracked up to be. And as it turns out, dreamers are not often doers. I was always interested in hope. I was interested in why people would not give up despite the most dire circumstances. And at first I thought positive thinking about the future is great for exploring the possibilities of the future. It's good for your mood. But when it comes to actually attaining the desired future, then it's a real detriment. Through her various studies, she found that the more students imagine getting better grades, the less they improved. The more someone imagined starting a new relationship, the less they actually began one. The more an individual imagined having a better diet, the less healthy they actually ate. Now, all of this seems to counter the notion of positive thinking. And she came up with a scientific cognitive reason why. The more we dream about the future, it can have an impact on the tasks in front of us in the present. Instead of pushing ourselves to go to the gym or take acting classes, we happily imagine having bigger muscles and and that big starring role on Broadway. And it almost tricks our mind into feeling happy for a result that hasn't happened yet. 
thereby decreasing our motivation to attain it. Elisa brought up another way to think about this. The aspect I was thinking of was how that plays on expectations. So, you know, we feel frustrated when expectations are not met, uh, you know, either from other people or from ourselves. So if we set it up that, you know, like we're imagining that we're going to achieve this thing, it's going to happen. It, it's setting up the expectation that it will. And while it's okay to, to go through that, we don't want to set ourselves up to expect it because then, you know, then we'll be frustrated when it doesn't, if it doesn't happen, because it doesn't happen every time. Like we were saying before, like maybe you go on a hundred auditions and you get 99 no's or just like no answer. You don't want to 99 times be disappointed, you know, set yourself up for disappointment. And so I also think about, yes, the getting the roles matter, but the audition itself is a goal. You know, being in the room, stretching your, your acting muscles, trying something out. That can be the, the thing that you imagine too, as this is what I want to accomplish. But I, th- but I think it, that as actors, you have, to, you have to balance the practicality of it, like we were saying before. But if the goal is always and only to book the job, ugh, that's going to be such a hard road. So the goal itself, or having the goals, is certainly not the problem. It's a matter of what we do if we don't achieve it, and then how do we keep maintaining our path toward it. That should be really our priority or our goal is everything that leads up to the actual achieving it. Yes, yes. The process is part of the goal in that redefining what success means. Is it booking that job or booking, you know, one of these jobs? And is it being in the room with that director who you really like their work? And is it getting to work your actor muscles and do your work? You're an actor. So acting is your job. So being an audition is your job. You just works today, you know, hanging your hat on those things because they really do matter as success. And this really gets to the crux of why I do this podcast, that idea of success, of making it. Not only are each of our goals different, but how we can reach them differ from person to person. How I get to Broadway is not how you will. Or maybe you want to write the next big musical, and my goal is to star in one. But as Elisa has shown us, these big goals can be important, but can't be the end-all, be-all of our happiness and fulfillment. There are smaller goals along the way, and it's important to recognize and celebrate those milestones as well. I mean, as much as theater and the arts are creative exercises, our mental approach to them is also a key factor in our enjoyment of them. Which is really the ultimate goal, right? Wherever life takes us, whatever path we're on, we want to enjoy it and find happiness in the journey, not just the destination. Well, we certainly covered a lot of insights and ideas over these past two episodes. And a big thank you goes out to Brooke and Elisa for sharing their expertise. And especially to you for joining us. I learned a great deal from their insights and I hope you have as well. If you know someone who you think could benefit from these conversations, please share these episodes with them. I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones. I also record, edit, and produce each episode. Music provided by Blue Dot Sessions and Poddington Bear. Join me for the next episode as we talk more about why I'll never make it.
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.